Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to Talking Tudors, episode 104. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and it's so lovely that you could join me. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does help, and your support is very much appreciated. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, Perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. April's prize is a copy of King and Collector, Henry VIII and the Art of Kingship by Linda Collins and Siobhan Clark. Thank you to the History Press UK for sponsoring this wonderful prize. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about Harvington Hall is Phil Downing. Phil is the Hall and Programs Manager of one of England's best-kept secrets, Harvington Hall in Worcestershire. Phil has studied the Tudor period for over 25 years. He actually started his working life as a professional golfer. Phil's knowledge spans across the whole era. However, the past five years, his study has focused around Catholic persecution during the reign of Elizabeth I and priest hides. Phil also runs the Tudor Tour Facebook page and creates YouTube video content. Recently, Phil appeared as a young Henry VIII on a Channel 5 documentary called Henry VIII and Trump, History Repeating. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales.
welcome back to Talking Tudors, Phil. How are you going? I'm very well, thank you, Natalie. How are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good. It's absolutely bucketing here in Sydney. It's been raining all day, so I feel a little like I'm in England. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a bit like that here today. It's very misty, so uh, yeah. Atmospheric, I like it. So, Phil, it's been a while since you've been on the podcast, so I, I suppose it would be a good thing for you just to, you know, introduce yourself to our listeners again and tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, of course. My name's Phil Downing. Um, I'm the Hall and Programs Manager at Harvington Hall. And last time I spoke to you, I was a volunteer tour guide of Harvington Hall. So since then, I've been promoted, (laughs) Um, which is great. So my background is a bit of a strange one, really. I mean, I'm not a historian. I've never studied history at university, uh, regrettably. Um, The Tudor era has been my life, really, from from a young boy. And uh, my career started as a professional golfer, of all things. So I've had a bit of a mixed, varied background, but Tudor history has always been in the background. So all of that, my main passion was always history. And I just didn't feel I was intelligent enough, I don't think, uh, to do that at university. But I just carried on doing my own reading. Uh, and before being at Harvington Hall, I was working at a museum called Avoncroft Museum, which is a museum where we have many different historic buildings that have been taken down and they've been uh, basically built On this site was a 19-acre site and we had houses going back from the Tudor Merchant House uh, right through to a a prefab 1940s, 50s house. And uh, and yeah, and then here I am now at my favourite place of all, Harvington Hall. So what was it in particular that kind of sparked your interest in the Tudor period? Can you remember? Yeah, it's a strange one. I I don't, I I was in year two and I think in England that's over here, year two, you're about six years old. And I always remember sitting in class. And I never really thought of history at this point. It's strange, isn't it, how you, you never think of those people that have been before you. And sitting uh, in this classroom, and we started talking about Mott and Bailey castles and all things. And then all of a sudden, my interest just, oh, this, people lived before us. It's, it's hard to try and explain. And literally over that next couple of years... I just started looking at history books. We went on school trips. And particularly, we went to a place called St. Fagans, which is a bit like Avoncroft, where I used to work, but at a bigger scale, where you've got buildings of all these different eras. But coming across the buildings of the medieval and Tudor period, something in my brain, I don't know what it was, just triggered that interest in the Tudor period. And for whatever reason, it just stuck with me. So throughout the whole of school, uh, you know, if we ever had a, a class where we went into the library, I would always go straight for the, the history books, the Tudor history books, where everyone else was looking for, you know, Roald Dahl, yeah. um, you know, things, like looking at kids' books. But there was me always looking for the history section, which would always be like where the, there's almost like a section where the older kids would have their kind of library. And I would always be in there, but trying to find all these, all these history books. And for whatever reason, as I say, it's just stuck with me. And I always wanted to be able to dress like a Tudor. And thankfully, I've been able to do that the last five years, which is a, it was a dream come true. <laughs> Bit yes. of a sad thing, really. There we go. <laughs> I have seen your many um, lovely outfits that you have, Tudor outfits. They, they're fantastic. Yeah. And I'm glad that I'm not the only one that kind of, because I've always been the same in thinking, you know, where I'm walking right now, other people have walked before me. I'm kind of totally fascinated by that idea. And I can see you are too. So that's great. We're not alone. Yeah. We're not alone. Now, Phil, You've mentioned you work, you're the manager at Harvington Hall, which is a, a beautiful Elizabethan manor house. So can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, well, Harvington Hall, the origins go back to the 13th century. So the moat that the hall sits on dates to about 1250. But the house that you see today is the 1580s house that was built by a man called Humphrey Packington. But the medieval house is actually still behind the brickwork, the centre block of Harvington Hall. When you look at a photograph of it, there's there's two towers either side and then you've got the centre block. And that dates back, we think, to the 14th century. 
which is behind the brickwork. So there was there were people living here during the medieval period. It was owned by the Earls of Warwick um, right up until 1529, where a man called Sir John Packington bought Harvington, and he was a, a wealthy lawyer in the court of Henry VIII. Um, Sir John Packington didn't live here. He had 30-odd estates across the Midlands. The guy was clearly loaded. He had a lot of money. But it wasn't until 1578 his great-nephew, Humphrey Packington, inherited the hall and actually built the, the hall that you see today. Harvington is actually only half of its original size as well. Half of it was demolished. So in, by 1595, it was described as Humphrey's Mansion House of Harvington. Uh, it's a pretty big place even today. You look at it from the outside, it actually looks quite small. But when you get in here, there's so many different corridors and rooms, and which I'm going to talk about a little bit later. But the house is very confusing. It's kind of designed that way to confuse you anyway. But one thing that is amazing about this house is such an untouched rare house in the fact that you know the last kind of alterations internally was around 1600 when they installed the great staircase we have got one georgian window or one major one long georgian window in the library now but predominantly it's all still elizabethan so much of the plaster work on the walls is still original many of the floorboards are original which completely just blows my mind every single time to think of the floorboards being there you know the original floorboards you're walking on the same floorboards as they were but you know the wall paintings that are on the walls harvington being famous for seven remaining priest holes and priest hides which is more than any other house in england just everywhere you look you see Elizabethan history staring you in the face. And we are still finding things out. Well, I'm still seeing things I've never seen before. You, you, you look at a wall, just look a little bit harder, and you then see another bit of a wall painting that you didn't see. There's a section on the Great Staircase, actually. It's a, it's a wooden panel, but people think it looks like a door. When it does look like a door, it's in a door shape, and it's just sort of cut out. The plasterwork's gone, and there's this, this thing there. And everyone thinks it's a door, but it's actually wood panelling, and it dates to about 1500, so it's, it predates the Elizabethan house. But it has some stents or paintwork on it to, to the naked eye just to look at it it all looks wooden and actually I only noticed a couple of weeks ago the the bits that you've got the wooden frame and then the bits in between is actually plaster work which I've looked at that door or that was not a door that panelling so many times over the years and never noticed it's actually plaster work in there I mean it just, it's crazy <laughs> Because it looks like wood. So, yeah, I've gone off a bit topic, topic a little bit there. But, yeah, it, it's just the thing, is, the thing is, Natalie, with Harvington Hall, I get so enthusiastic and so carried away. I kind of forget what the question was. But um, <laughs> it's just an amazing house. It's just an amazing house. It really is. I love, I absolutely love your enthusiasm. Very contagious. And I was just thinking to myself when you were saying that the last major kind of internal renovations were in the 1600s that that is really amazing like I've visited that many historic properties in England and unfortunately the good old Victorians have gotten to a lot of the places you mentioned yeah, the audience cool. but you know and and that is so that is really special and now you mentioned priest hides Phil but I'm I don't know if everyone knows what these are so could you tell us exactly what a priest hide is and why they were built yeah, of course. So a priest hide is more commonly known as a priest hole. What they are effectively are secret hiding places built within the very walls of a home. So these hiding places are there to house Catholic priests. Now, in 1585, it became illegal to be a Catholic priest in England or to set foot on English soil if ordained after 1559. So the Catholic gentry um, needed well, they still wanted to hear the mass, of course. They, 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 you know, they still wanted to practice their religion. And in doing that, they had to have Catholic priests at their home. So they built hiding places for the priests. Harmington has seven hiding places, which is more than, than any other house uh, still surviving in England. There's still around 120 to 130 priest hides still in existence, over around 100 or so homes uh, still. So still quite a, a number of them. And then there's a house 
There's a house, house called Ufton Court, which has four priest hides. So that's uh, that's the second most surviving. And then the mo- majority of houses sort of have two, or they might have just one in their ha- house. But let's say Harvington, half it was demolished. So for all we know, we could have had another half a dozen in the other wing of the house. Why priest hides came about it is a topic where you could be here all day to actually discuss it. But in, in short, the reason they've come about, the first thing is to debunk the myth that everyone says to me that it's because of Henry VIII's break with Rome. It's not a direct link to that because a lot of people say, well, of course, you know, I'm sure these came about because of Henry VIII's break with Rome. But no, it wasn't. It's actually because of Elizabeth's first reign is why we've got to this situation. So very, keeping it very brief, because I'll be keeping everyone here all day if I was to really go into it. But Elizabeth comes to the, uh, the throne in November 1558. She is a Protestant living now in a Catholic country because, of course, it was Catholic under Mary. And Elizabeth wanted to create kind of the halfway house, effectively. It's trying to keep everyone happy. So she creates the Church of England that we kind of would recognise today, where visually it looked Catholic, but in doctrine it was a more watered-down version of Edward's 1552 Common Book of Prayer. Uh, and so hoping this would keep everyone happy and kind of just probably hoping the Catholic faith would kind of just dwindle away a little bit. But the, the 1560s remained pretty much normal for the Catholics. They were still attending church. Some of the priests from Mary's reign were still doing uh, church services in, in the, the traditional, the old old way, although they shouldn't be doing that. Uh, there were things called recusancy fines, which is uh, people that were re- refusing to attend the Church of England service, the Catholics that were refusing to go. The fine was 12 pence a week, which is a roughly about £10 in today's money. The fines were very rarely collected, um, so things were relatively normal for the first sort of 10 years of Elizabeth's reign. But in 1568, then Mary, Queen of Scots, arrives in England and placed under house arrest in the north of England. Unfortunately for Elizabeth, the, the north is still uh, staunchly Catholic. They rally around Mary and see her as a figurehead, and they then want to replace Elizabeth with Mary. The rebellion gets crushed. 1570 is the real turning point in Elizabeth's reign for Elizabeth and for the Catholics as well. In in my eyes, um, in 1570, Pope Pius V excommunicates Elizabeth. And he's basically saying to Catholics at this point, you do not need to obey your queen anymore. So for your everyday Catholic, you're in a very sticky situation now. Do you follow the Pope who rules you spiritually? Or do you then follow your queen who rules you in body? You're stuck in the middle. You're wedged in the middle. What do you do now? And... What happened then in 1574, you had the seminary priests, Catholic priests start to arrive from northern France, where they've been studying in a college in Flanders. Uh, and they come back into England and start, of course, administering mass. People can now hear the mass again as everything is, is gone kind of more the Church of England way. Um, but in 1580, then the Jesuit priests join the seminary priests. And this is where things get really bad now. So the Jesuit priests arrive. They are now telling the recusants that you can't attend church and still remain effectively a good Catholic. Pope Gregory at this time has come out and said that whosoever sends her out of this world with the pious intention of doing God's service not only does not sin, but gains merit. So now the Pope has given the green light to the Catholics to assassinate Elizabeth. So you have something called the Act of Persuasion that came in and recusancy fines were now increased to £20 a month. We're now talking £4,000 in today's money. Uh, You now start to see plots throughout the 1580s. In 1585, England is now at war with Spain. And then we have the Babington plot. Mary, Queen of Scots gets executed. And then we have the Spanish Armada. 
So for a Catholic in England, you are seen to be on the side of the bad guys because, of course, Spain is a Catholic superpower of the world. They basically rule the world. So and it was very dangerous. And of course, and this is why you had to have priesthoods in your house. That's a very rough, probably bad way of explaining it. But that's the quick version. I've probably missed loads out there. I thought that was really good. You covered a lot. And and yeah, you can see why there was a need for them, obviously. And I mean, the the other thing is as well, by 1586, some 300 priests had arrived back in England at that point. Uh, Around 130 or so were still actually at work. So many of them had died in prison. Many of them were still in prison. Around 33 were actually executed by this point and the rest had been banished or they'd they'd fled the country. So yeah, pretty scary, isn't it? (laughs) Horrible thing that can happen to you, obviously, you'd be hanged, drawn and quartered if you were captured uh, in a priest hide. And the family would have also been punished. So you'd have your lands taken from you, heavily fined, put in prison or you could be executed. So uh, a pretty scary time. Phil, I know that you've actually spent time in a priest hide before. It's been Uh, a little while and that you're planning to go in again. Now, these aren't very big. They obviously vary in sizes, but just to give people an idea, what's what's sort of the, the kind of average size of a priest hide, I suppose? Average size is very difficult. You can't really give an average for them. They're all in different shapes and sizes. Now, traditionally, the, the earlier priest hides or the hiding places that were installed by your regular builder tended to be very small places. And this is why people would call it a priest hole, because they are small spaces. In the fact, like, give you an example, one here at Harvington above the bread oven, which does people get a bit freaked out when I say that. <laughs> above the bread oven, which is actually entered from the garderobe upstairs underneath the floor in the toilet. That is only five foot deep. It's two foot seven by three foot nine. So that's a very, very small space. But then you get one in our attic, which is the second largest hide in England, which is then 12 foot wide, 17 foot long and seven foot high at its highest point. So you're kind of going, you know, it's varying different sizes. The one I slept in before, the one I slept in for 24 hours is five foot nine in length, five foot wide and six foot high. The one I'm about to go into again, that's a hiding, to, to me, that's a hiding place that was relatively big for a priest hole. So some of these hiding places were only standing room only. You couldn't really sit down. You couldn't even really crouch down because you, your knees, you, if you lifted your knees up to sort of kneel down, you wouldn't really be able to fit. Yeah, there's no average size, but when you get, come 1588, a man called Nicholas Owen was at work and he was building these secret hiding places that we believe we've got some of his here at Harvington. All of his designs were of a, a different design, should I say. All of his hides were different in the fact that, you know, if you found one, like here, we've got a swinging beam hide where you push on the beam and it swings open. If he's created one here, you don't want to create the same hide anywhere else. Right, yeah. Because, of course, the authorities say, well, hang on, this beam swings. Let's go to another house and see if their beams swing open. So he had to be very clever. And, and Nicholas Owen was such a clever man. In fact, he couldn't write anything down. There's no blueprints or anything like that for his work. He has to do everything in his head. Um, because, of course, if anyone comes in and finds you know, plans of a priest hole, of course, he's going to be in trouble. So, yeah, it's just a, a fascinating subject. And not everyone's ever, you know, not everyone's heard of a priest hole. But when you come to a place like Harmington, you kind of blows your mind a little bit with all the different, all the bits of trickery that the house has got to try and disguise the, the hiding places. It's uh, very, yeah, very clever. Wow, that's quite amazing. And I know you're you're planning now to spend 36 hours in every yeah. tide. So why on earth are you doing that? What are you hoping to get out of it? Are you trying to understand what it is the people then felt when they were in these? Obviously that, you know, you don't have the, the added stress of possibly being hung, drawn and quartered if you're captured in one, but is that sort of the idea yeah. behind the experience? Yes, it is. I mean, you know, Harvington Hall 
thankfully, actually, since I've taken over as manager, I'm not blowing my own trumpet or, or, or saying it's down to me, but Harvington has, has definitely been more in the public eye since I've taken over as manager. We've increased our following by quite a few thousand on, on all sorts of social media platforms. And it's to try and show awareness of Harvington. You know, my long-term mission has always been that Harvington will be one of England's must-see houses. You know, you've got all the amazing houses like Hampton Court, Hever Castle, Harvington Hall, I want to get to that point at some stage. And with the power of social media, you can get there. It just takes a lot of hard work to do it. The other thing is, is to raise money. You know, we've been closed now since uh, October, November, 2019. We've had no income at all. One thing I can tell you is running a historic house is not cheap. When you see the bills rolling every single month, you realize, wow, <laughs> these are not cheap places. So, you know, we, we need money. There's work that needs to be done in the house as well. Structurally, the house is fine, thankfully, but there are things that need to be done. So it's trying to raise awareness, try and raise some money. And for my own personal thing, it's again, just to tell, be able to tell that experience to people that I, you know, I have slept in a priest hide. I can kind of understand what they must have been going through without the fear of being caught and, and all the rest of it. And 36 hours is a nice jump from the 24 hours I've already done. You know, I don't want to do 24 hours again. I know I can do it. People can easily say, well, he's done it before. You know, why do we want to donate money? But as you'll remember, because I know you, thank, you know, very kindly shared it for me a few years ago. At that point, you know, we didn't have much following on social media. We, we raised around £1,000, which is still great, but I want to go obviously a lot more now. We really need the money a lot more than we did then. So uh, th that's the main reason for doing it. You know, and priest hides, I, I, do you know what? Li I listened back to the podcast that we did last time and I actually said something inaccurate and I was kicking myself afterwards. I said the longest time a priest had slept in a hide was 11 days. I got that wrong. It was 10 days. And that's probably the fact I'd just woken up as we discussed <laughs> before we started this. I literally just woken up last time. So I was a bit all over the place. But priests could spend as little as four hours in a priest hide all go up to 10 days so there was 10 days uh someone was in there for nine days the same guy who was in one for 10 days had another stay in one for eight days it's a long time to be shoved in a hiding oh, place yeah. um so yeah so that's the reason i'm doing it and again you know in doing that i'm going to be very authentic there's going to be me in costume i'm going to have no mobile phone again no torch no watch nothing but just food and drink that's it really what i'm going to try and do this time is try and get a camera past into the hide for me so I can just do regular updates to get them to post it on Twitter for me. Unfortunately, there's no Wi-Fi. I mean, I'm in the middle of nowhere. The walls are really thick sandstone walls. The Wi-Fi only really works here in the office or the room above or below. Anywhere else in the hall, it doesn't reach. So in a priest hole, it won't reach. But otherwise, I would have liked to have done live feeds in there. It would have been really, really good. Um, unfortunately, I can't do that. But yes, that's why I'm doing it. So call me crazy. Yeah. I am crazy. But, uh, <laughs> no, no, I totally get it. And yeah, and look, we're supporting you, Phil, and we will be sharing everything you're doing. So that's for sure. Now, um, something that just came to mind. So you have been closed for a while, like you just mentioned. So what's been going on there during all this time? So we closed initially because uh, the vaulted ceiling in the withdrawing room, which is a lovely, lovely bright room. It's east facing. So it's a lovely light room uh, throughout the day. And it's in part of the medieval 
medieval hall, effectively, but it's now the Elizabethan part, but effectively we're in the medieval part of the hall. Uh, and the, so the vaulted ceiling was deemed to be unsafe. The plasterwork was uh, starting to detach itself from the lath. So we had to remove the ceiling. And then we thought, well, we'll be able to open at that point. But of course, we couldn't because of coronavirus and all the rest of it. But we're also undergoing something called a conservation management plan. So this is having various scans done of the hall. The hall has not ever been properly recorded in the fact it's never been measured properly or there's no been no proper building recording of the hall. Um, and of course, technology's moved on so much since the initial restoration of the 1930s. So, you know, it, it's looking at all those things. We've had guys um, scanning all the house with lasers and cameras. And now we can, from that, we'll be able to create, create a virtual tour of the house as well. Things like I've been able to see, it's like a doll's house view of the house. And then you can sort of zoom in and, and you can twist and turn the house so you can work out where you are in the house. So if you, if you go in the attic and then you press floor one, it will take you directly on a, on a vertical oh, wow. point straight down. So you can actually tell where you are in the house, which for Harvington is exciting because, as I said, the layout is so confusing sometimes. And, and do you know what? Volunteers of the hall, we never get bored of talking about the hall. You, we just can't. You're constantly talking about it all the time because you can stand in the room and go, well, what, what's directly below here? Or <laughs> what? Because you just don't know. And that's the thing. I mean, thankfully, during... You know, we've had three or four lockdowns now in the UK. But throughout that first lockdown, I really got to know the hall better than I ever have before because I was busy, but not as busy as probably as I am, certainly as I am now. So I was sort of standing in places and really working out and figuring out the hall. And it, it takes some doing. It really takes some doing. It's, it's that confusing. But so that's some of the work we've had done. We've also just removed the shop floor as well. So in order for these guys to do the scans we wanted to take the floor up because the original floor level is 18 inches below the gift shop floor. So we took the floorboards up and noticed that there's been a radiator leaking for years underneath the floor. So it's caused a damp problem. The other issue is as well, the moat is literally just underneath that floor. So of course it's constantly damp. So there's a floor above, you've got the wet floor underneath, it's just created a damp issue. So we've taken the floor out and now we've exposed the brickwork of the shop which effectively was the buttery once upon a time so the buttery is nothing to do with dairy it's a it's basically a cellar so you'd have your beer your, your ale and your and your wine in there and it was probably a pantry as well the flooring that's in there isn't elizabethan the bricks are too big for that so i don't know what era that is but we've now taken it down to ground level so uh this year now we're going to be open when the hall is open people will be able to walk around it's sort of it, the shop is sort of in the middle and there's like a circular route around it so you can see in from all kind of angles so the doorways will be open they'll have like a perspex thing across so you can't fall in and you'll be able to look into the room and see you know how the room would have looked which is fascinating because it hasn't been exposed for about 35 years 30 35 years something like that so it's nice to be able to see it in that way but the room looks completely different it's really weird to go in there now it's just just really odd really is so that's the kind of work we've been up to and we've got plenty more to do yeah. <laughs> so Sounds like you've been uh, busy in all that time very busy. <laughs> very busy yeah so you mentioned obviously priest hides but i know that there's other really cool stuff to see at harvington hall for us tudor lovers so what are the yeah. other must-see highlights that people should you know make sure they take note of when they visit i don't think you have to take note of anything you see everything you, as soon as you walk in you just go wow it's kind of it's it's all there but i think one thing i would say to people when you visit the house you'll see the stuff blatantly obvious in front of you You can't miss the wall paintings they, they hit you in the face you know straight away but it's to look at things in a little bit more detail like the door frames for instance 
a lot of the door frames are painted, but they're so faint now you can't really tell. So a lot of the door frames are either green or they're red. So you just, <laughs> that's the thing. And again, it's things I've noticed more during lockdown. I've noticed these things and haven't really noticed it before. The hall would have been very brightly colored at one point. You can clearly see that. But when you go around the house, you know, you'll see the floorboards. When you walk on them, you feel like you're drunk because they are very slopey. So the floorboards, just, you know, take note of those. Be aware of your surroundings and you'll just see everything. The wall paintings, you know, we don't just have a little bit of wall painting. We have tons of it. And that's that's the thing. You know, you go to other houses of this era that have wall paintings and they'll have snippets. They might have just a, you know, one section on a wall. And it'll say, look at, look at this wall painting dating back to 15, whatever. You know, we've got whole sections of walls covered with the original plaster and the painting still on it. Even to the point the new staircase, which is the spiral staircase, has painting on the steps underneath the steps, which I know you've posted on on your yes, yeah. Facebook page when where I did the, uh, the the takeover for twenty was it twenty four hours or whatever it was, and underneath you can see all the all the paintwork there. So I think it's just a case of absorbing everything that surrounds you. And you know I've seen people come into the hall and literally walk around in half an hour and walk out. So that's a load of rubbish, which is that's... really strange. I don't understand. I don't understand. But I think I don't whether they're not into history or they just don't take note of anything. But I'm just thinking how. How can you say it's not interesting, you know? But, um, you know, 99.9% of people are blown away by it when they walk in. Um, one thing I'd suggest, if you do visit Harmonton, go on a guided tour. Because if you don't go on the guided tour, you are just looking at a, an old house. Yes, you're seeing amazing, but you get the, the backstory with everything and, and the real history of the hall. And it just brings it all to life. I mean, that's and that's what we're doing this year. It's going to be guided tours only for 2021. So when when the website's up and running, which hopefully by the time this is released, uh, it'll be up and running. So from the 21st of May, we'll be taking booking. Well, 21st of May is the first day we're going to be open um, for guided tours. It's going to be minimal numbers and the, your tour guide will take you around and they will literally tell you all the bits you need to know about the hall uh, and just telling the story of Harvington and, and hopefully bringing it to life for you. That's what we're hoping. Fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah, I think that background information is so important just to give you more context. I think it makes it more interesting. But so what can, you know, we've got lots of people listening today, a lot that would be in the UK, a lot that would be out of the UK and Australia, the US, all over the world. What can they do to help ensure that Harvington can reopen safely? Reluctantly. I say, I mean, asking for money. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, look. Yeah. D- donations, yeah. It's donations. and We even say even just a pound, you know, would go a long way you know and so if, if everyone gave a pound then then you know that would really help as i said it, it the, the running costs are astronomical we're going to be opening the grounds shortly for free so we're letting people in the local community in for free but of course we're not going to be getting any income from that and of course there's still running costs there so it's really by me doing spending time in the hide it's just sort of donating money and, and helping us that way but even if you just to share you know, the Harmonton Hall Facebook page or our Twitter page or just something like that, just to try and spread the word a little bit more of Harvington Hall. A unique like house like this, the last thing I want is for it to go to rack and ruin. And it's not happening under my watch. You know, this house has been standing for, well, some of it's been standing since the 1300s. You know, the last thing I want is it to fall down while I'm in charge. You know, you know, Harmonton is my life. I'm working every hour God sends just to try and do as much as I can to keep it uh, not afloat. She's keeping afloat on its own. You know, it's not going anywhere, but you know, I'm, I'm doing everything I can to try and promote it and push it and, and get us out there. So uh, it's been a very stressful time. I won't, I won't lie. It's, and I, you know, we're not, and I'm, I'm saying this, you know, we're not the only historic house that's going to be in this situation. Everyone's in the same boat. You know, unfortunately, the National Trust made many people redundant during the lockdown period. It's just been horrible for the whole heritage sector at the moment. So any, any way anyone can help, we would appreciate it. And is that on your website? Is that how they 
can donate? Yeah, so the website... When's the website going to be up and running? Hopefully, (laughs) hopefully within a day or two. Hopefully, if, if if you go on a website and it doesn't look particularly great, it's right. probably well, I say it now, it's probably the old one. If it's okay. the new one, you'll notice because it'll have our new logo on it. The current website's a bit out of, out of date, so but there is a donate button on there still. There's a donate button on whatever website you see. There's a donate button there, yeah. Um, and you just follow the steps uh, and you can donate through there. Fantastic. And now, obviously, we want everyone to to book some guided tours at Harvington Hall if possible. But can you, Phil, just recommend, is there anywhere else if they're trying to make a whole week of it or a weekend of it? Are there any other properties that you would recommend people pop into as well? Yes, I would. I mean, you could do almost a kind of priest hole uh, tour almost around here because the, the Midlands was staunch what well, was very much Catholic uh, during the uh, during that period so you've got houses like Coton Court which isn't uh, that far away which was owned by the Throckmorton family and they actually owned Harvington in, in later years and um, so you've got Coton Court is a great place to go to has links with the gunpowder plot as well um, you've also got um, Badsley Clinton which again isn't that far from here that also has a, a couple of priest holes there. And that was searched by the priest hunters. Harmonton never was, but that was. So you've got those sort of things. You've also got Worcester very close by as well. So the city of Worcester. Um, so I know the place you've been to, Worcester Cathedral, yes. is fascinating, lovely place. You've got the tomb there of uh, Prince Arthur, Henry VIII's um, elder brother. And you've also got the tomb of King John in there as well. And the city of Worcester has just got loads of history there. You've got various uh, museums and things to go to you've got the commandery in Worcester which is somewhere I'd really highly recommend that has uh, links with the English Civil War and the Battle of Worcester um, so there's loads of places around here and then yeah even a little bit further afield you've got other places like and again keeping on the, almost like the Catholic theme almost you've got Boscobel which is where uh, Charles II hid out and Mosley Old Hall as well which isn't that far away so some amazing places nearby but being biased I would say Harmington is the best one <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> and this, I think just for how original the house is, you know, you, you're not going to find too many other places like it. You also, Phil, do a little bit of historical reenacting. You've already mentioned your costumes and whatnot and some film work as well. Is there anything exciting in the pipeline that you can share with us? I would love to say yes, but currently no. I'm so I'm so snowed under with, with Harvington Hall. It's uh, it, it just sort of sort of controls, <laughs> rules my life a little bit. Nothing in the pipeline as such. Uh, reenactments, hopefully we're going to start again. We might be able to start again a few this summer. But again, it's different now because I'm not a volunteer anymore. I'm now the manager. I, I of course, where I would normally be dressed in lovely Elizabethan costumes and prancing around the garden um, and doing things and, and, you know, and shooting arrows and what have you. I'm, I'm going to sort of not be able to do that so much now. Film work, no. I mean, I did that one documentary on Channel 5 where I played young Henry VIII. It was the, you can still see it on My 5 Catch-Up if you're in the UK. It was, um, it's a bit controversial sounding. It was Henry VIII and Trump history that's, repeating. That's right, yeah. Um, it wasn't the controversial documentary people thought it was going to be. It really wasn't bashing Donald Trump and saying he was this terrible man. It was just literally comparing the parallels, which there were quite a lot of fascinating parallels between the two. Uh, and you had historians on there like Professor Suzanne Lipscomb. Um, Tracy Borman was on there as well. But I also do my own sort of film, well, very low production, of course, film work for my Tudor Tours Facebook page. Yes, um, I was going to ask you about that. Is that still, you still yeah. doing that? 
I'm not on there very much um, because, of course, doing all the social media for the hall, that that sort of is more important to me, doing that side of things. But last year I was supposed to have filmed um, at Penshurst Place. I was, uh, well, that's where I filmed the documentary, but that's where I was supposed to do one of my videos as well. Uh, Gloucester Cathedral, I had permission to film there as well uh, and do a really nice video for there. Um, and that didn't happen. And I've never been to Gloucester Cathedral. And I know it's got one of the most cool. famous cloisters going. It you does. know, it's, uh, it's amazing. Absolutely, absolutely beautiful. Um, so I didn't get to go there either. And then there's a few other places I've got that I, I'm contacting to see if I can go and film and do some filming. I've also done a promotional film that I'm, I'm in the process of doing at the moment off Harvington. It's going to be my best video yet. So my cameraman Ian has got some, he's bought some new lenses for his camera and they're very high quality lenses, which will make it look very kind of cinematic looking, which is great. So I'm hoping to get that sorted. Um, we have to do a bit of re-editing. When I've been editing the video, I noticed, it's quite amusing actually, the priest hide where I'm sleeping and I had to climb into it to do a bit of filming. And I didn't realise I'd sat on a bit of plaster that had fallen off the ceiling. So I've got this white streak going down the back of my jeans. And there's a, there's a shot of me walking up the ladder. Um, and my bum has just got this white stuff all over it. So um, I've had to say to him, we're going to have to refilm certain bits because this, <laughs> I've got this thing all over the back of my jeans. So, yeah, so that, that's that's what we're doing, really. I'm not doing that's much quite else. A lot. It's quite a lot. Of it's quite a lot. And, you know, and I said, this, this job is very full on and yeah. it takes up all of my time. Which is uh, which I don't mind. This is a dream job. I'm certainly not complaining about it. But um, you've got to be dedicated to to do a job that's so full on. Now, Phil, you know that I at the end of these episodes, I like to ask guests for a Tudor takeaway. So something for our listeners to go off and check out after the episode. So do you have any suggestions for us? No, I can't remember what I said to you last time. I think Neither it was. Can I now? I'm to... I think it was Father John Gerard's autobiography. Yes, I think it was. I think the, it was the Hunted Priest. My Tudor takeaway this time, I basically have, I call them my Bibles, as it were, my go-to books that I always read, particularly for when I'm doing tours of Harmington and, and, and on the sort of this subject. So I've got a couple, really. So one is the, the, the autobiography of Father John Jarrett, which I said last time. The other one would be God's Traitors, Terror and Faith in Elizabethan England by Jesse Childs. That is my favourite history book. And also a book that's not published anymore, but you can still get hold of it. Just about, I think. But I think the price is now increasing because there's very few of them about. Um, it's a book called Secret Hiding Places by Michael Hodgetts. Now, Michael Hodgetts is the oracle of Harvington Hall. So he is the world leading expert in priest holes. He has done the most extensive research on priest holes. He's in his 80s now, but he's been at the Harmington Hall since 1955. So that is a book that I would suggest getting. He's, he studied at Oxford and also studied at um, the Gregorian College in Rome. A very intelligent man. Um, what that man doesn't know about priest hides, I mean, it is absolutely frightening. His brain is just full of information. You ask him something and he will tell you exactly, exactly to the detail what you need to know. So Secret Hiding Places is a book I think everyone should have. It, it, it basically includes... Not every single priest hole in the country, but he explains that how the you know the designs of them. He's literally cl um, crawled into every single priest hole known to man um, and measured them and, and and done extensive research. So yeah, so that's uh, that's a book I highly recommend if you uh, if you get chance to uh, chance yeah. to find it. I'm going to try and find it now, Phil. See, now you've got me spending more money that I just bought two books, and I said that's it, no more, no more books yeah. this week. Well, I, <laughs> yeah, right. I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's cheap anymore. I, I managed oh, to get yeah. hold of it on Amazon. I think it was about ten pounds when I got it. I think it's gone up to about twenty or thirty pounds right, now. Okay. I think. 
Yeah. Um, but it's it, it's it's a, a worthwhile read. I really, I would like him to get it published again. I don't know how you know you do that, but I'm I'm hoping one day it'll be able to. Uh, you know, because there is another book called Secret Hiding Places um, by a, a man called Granville Squires, who was a guy that was stud- he was doing the study of priest holes before Michael, and Michael basically took on his work and uh, and he um, he basically followed on his work and, and wrote a book under the same title but basically found out more done more research um since then can i just say one interesting thing i don't know yeah. if listeners will be interested in it but something that that not many people know about this so father john gerard who i mentioned in the last podcast yes. is a priest um, who escaped england and was almost captured at a house called um, braddock's and he was hiding underneath a false fireplace and the priest centers lit the fire and it burns a hole into the priest hide. Now, Granville Squires, who wrote the first Secret Hiding Places book, um, went to Braddock's. I mean, this is earlier 1900s, the 1930s or whenever it may have been, and went into the hiding place. And he found ash on the floor of the priest hole. And he believed it to be the ash of when the fire was lit all those years ago with John Gerard. He didn't document this in his book, but he actually put it away, he secretly put it away. And I think he gave it to a, a, a college or something like that. And he only ever told Michael, who now has written the book, Michael, who I know. So Michael was the only other person to know that this ash still exists. And thankfully, Michael managed to get hold of whoever it was. I don't know if it was a college or someone. And they managed to get, it was in a little tin and they were about to throw it away. But somewhere... This little tin holds the ash of the fire that was lit of when Father John Gerard was hiding, and very few people, it's not documented anywhere. So, one little fascinating bit of history there that's still, still out in the world. And you heard so, it first here on Talking Tudors, right, Phil? Yeah, you heard it here first. No, you won't have heard it anywhere else. So, uh, yeah. Love it. Thank you so much. Now, it's been such a pleasure chatting to you. Always is. I love your enthusiasm and I love your dedication and and the great care you're taking there at Harvington Hall. So thank you so much. Please keep us updated on, you know, what's going on there. And when the website's up, let me know and I will share and hopefully we'll get to do a tour one day. It was on my list, wasn't it, for last year? Last year, of course. And then I never got there. So it's something I've still got to look forward to. So thank you so much, Phil. No problem. Thanks for having me again. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. <music>